Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. Today is the end of Adaptation Week. We spent the past few days listening to authors whose books got turned into huge movies, and today we're going to end it with a couple of big ones. Later in the show, we'll have the authors of American Prometheus, the book that inspired the box office juggernaut that was Oppenheimer. But first, later this year, George Clooney is coming out with a movie he directed called The Boys in the Boat. It's based on the 2013 book of the same name, but the subtitle gives you a decent handle on what it's about. It reads, Nine Americans and Their Epic Quest for the Gold at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. The boys are in the boat because they're rowers, by the way. The book's author, Daniel James Brown, talked to Here and Now's Robin Young back when the book was published, and he really focused on how tight, how in sync this ragtag crew team had to be in order to be successful. In 1936, nine young oarsmen from the University of Washington transfixed their fellow Americans. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, helps you build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. Check out The Noom Kitchen for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox, helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original drama Time, starring Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, and Bella Ramsey. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And as one writer later said, wiped the smile off of Hitler's watching face as they beat the German crew to win the gold medal in rowing at the Berlin Olympics. But even before they won the gold, their coaches knew these young men were something special. The boys who had made it this far were rugged and optimistic in a way that seemed emblematic of their Western roots. They were the genuine article, mostly the products of lumber towns, dairy farms, mining camps, fishing boats, and shipyards. They looked, they walked, and they talked as if they had spent most of their lives out of doors. Despite the hard times and their pinched circumstances, they smiled easily and openly. They extended calloused hands eagerly to strangers. They looked you in the eye, not as a challenge, but as an invitation. They joshed you at the drop of a hat. They looked at impediments and saw opportunities. All that, Bulls knew, added up to a lot of potential in a crew. In other words, they were rowers, and they were Americans. That's Daniel James Brown reading from his new book, The Boys in the Boat, which is about rowing, but it's also about America at a certain time and place. And Daniel James Brown joins us in the studio. Uh, One writer calls this chariots of fire with oars. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah. So where to start? How about where where did you start? Uh, A lot of people knew that the African-American Jesse Owens ticked off Hitler (laughs) at those Olympics. I did not know about the Washington State crew. I did not know either, and I had lived in Seattle for about 20 years when I started this. The story literally walked into my living room one afternoon in the form of a woman named Judy Willman. She uh, said that her father was under hospice care living at her home, and she had been reading one of my earlier books to him, and he wondered if he could meet me. So a few days later, I went down to her house and sat down with him. His name was Joe Rance. And he talked a lot about um, growing up in the Depression. And then he began to talk about this experience he had had of joining the University of Washington's crew and ultimately of going to Berlin in 1936 and rowing against, among others, a German crew in front of Adolf Hitler and 
other top Nazis. <laughs> and as I listened to that story, I just, I was mesmerized by it. Yeah. Well, we've heard a little bit about who they were. Set the scene, which is also a character of where they were. Washington State, 1930s, late 20s, so unknown to Easterners that when they finally do begin rowing and come east, people think Seattle is in Washington, D.C. Yeah, people on the East Coast, in some cases, literally didn't know where Seattle was. Seattle in the late 20s and early 30s was uh, a pretty dark, dismal place where not much was happening. And Joe Rance becomes a metaphor for this time. He, His mother died when he was young. His stepmother didn't like him. She was an aspiring violinist uh, yes. and, and was, was living now in poverty with Joe's father, and they just left him. Yes, right in 1929, in the fall of 1929, Joe came home from school one day and found his whole family uh, packed into a car with the car running, and his father told him that uh, he was taking his new wife and the other kids and leaving, and Joe was not to come. And so for quite some time after that, he had to subsist literally by foraging in the woods for mushrooms and berries and poaching salmon from the Dungeness River. Well, but that terrible rejection also may have been what fueled him. He gets to the University of Washington. He doesn't dress well, but he's a hard worker, and crew will keep him in school. Yeah, exactly. Crew ultimately is his salvation. Because he had to depend on himself, he had nobody but himself to depend on. He became very independent, but he had a hard time trusting other people, understandably, after what had happened to him. And when he first joined the crew, he had trouble fitting in with the other boys in the boat. He had a hard time just opening himself up to other people or trusting other people. You can't have that in a skull. No. Crew is all about cooperation. I mean, it is of all the sports that are out there, crew more than any other depends on a fine degree of um, mutual trust and mutual cooperation. The oars all have to enter the the water at precisely the same moment. They have to be held at the same angle. The oars have to be pulled with the same amount of force. The crew really has to become one melded together. How big a deal was crew as a sport in the U.S. in the late 20s, 30s? We forget. Crew was, in fact, enormously popular in the 20s and 30s. Hundreds of thousands of people would turn out for a regatta. Oarsmen were sometimes featured on the cover of Saturday Evening Post and other major magazines. And so becoming an oarsman was a a big deal. But but what we see, though, through the prism of crew is, again, this east-west divide. The East Coast was said to own the sport of crew. You have had Princeton and Harvard... How much of an upset was it that the University of Washington began winning, beating these Ivy League schools with this ragtag team of what people, you know, people all assumed they were lumberjacks? Right. It was a big deal. It was not a terrible surprise to the people from the West, I think, but it was a terrible surprise to the people from the East. These kids from the West coming in and suddenly beating schools that had had rowing programs for, for decades and decades. Nobody at the University of Washington had ever held an oar in his hand before he turned up at the crew house. Many of the kids rowing for the Eastern Universities had had rowed at least since high school age. Well, and there was a little bit of dirty business because they win the Olympic trials, and suddenly the rowing association says to them, well, you know, you have to pay your way. Right. What happened was uh, a number of the sports writers from Seattle, within an hour of that, began making phone calls back to Seattle, and phones started ringing off the hook, all over Seattle, all that night. Suddenly we're in Boys in the Boat, the musical on Broadway. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Because people are running around collecting pennies. Exactly. Um, By the next morning, there were people on the street corners uh, with cops collecting pennies and nickels and quarters, 
Uh, they sold little paper tags for a quarter apiece to raise funds to send the crew to, to Berlin. And within two days, they had amassed $5,000, which in, during the Depression was an extraordinary amount of money. And the boys from Washington were good to go. The Olympics was Hitler's pre-war chance to whitewash his true agenda. His friend, Lenny Riefenstahl, then airbrushed the games further in her propaganda film, Olympia. Daniel, pick up the story there, because for your book, you research the history of Seattle, of boat building, but also of the Berlin Olympics. Your thoughts? I was stunned at the extent to which they transformed Berlin for the sake of appearances. So they swept all the homeless people from the streets. They imprisoned all the uh, gypsies, took them off out of their homes in the middle of the night and sent them off to concentration camps from which they never returned. They really transformed it into sort of a movie set for this fantasy version of the Third Reich that they created. Well, and onto this stage comes the nine boys from the University of Washington gawking at everything they're seeing. Yeah. I mean, they're, not, they're, they're out of the country for the first time. We know who wins, right? but yet, as you tell this story, we don't think they're going to win. How high were these stakes in this race? The stakes were enormously high. I mean, they were representing the United States of America. And when we look back at it in the historical context, they were really representing a set of values that we still cherish today, opposed to a set of values that we, I think, universally despise it's hard not to see it literally as a conflict between good and evil. The American crew, these guys were, um, I've come to know each of them, even though most of them had passed away by the time I started, by talking to their families. And these were nine very nice young men, open-hearted, eager, pleasant young men. And they came up against the cynicism of the Nazi regime. That's part of what makes that gold medal race so compelling. It also just happened to be one heck of a race. Unbelievable. The, the Americans got off to a terrible start. They and the British were assigned the two outermost lanes, which meant they had to row into the face of a stiff headwind. The German and Italian boats, the two fascist states, uh, were assigned the two innermost lanes, which were very much protected. So they started off with terrible handicaps. They missed the starting signal, so they Nobody got could off. hear it. No, they couldn't hear it. The wind carried it away. Plus, the starting signal was in French, and it's not entirely clear that any of them understood it. Their, their stroke oar, the fellow who sets the rhythm of the boat, the most critical oar in the boat, Don Hume, had been sick in bed for days leading up to the race, and they literally got him out of bed, put him in the boat, and uh, asked him to row. Yeah, but they had another weapon, the coxswain. They had Bobby Mock. Small most, but smart. Yeah, and pugnacious. He was a real character. He was um, five foot seven, which is how tall I am. So I identify a lot with Bobby Mock. And like any coxswain, he had the, the task of ordering around a lot of men who were much bigger than him. But he was very, very good at it. He commanded everybody's respect. And in this race, he scared even the coaches, the University of Washington coaches. He held back so long. He did. And he had a habit of doing this. He had a habit of terrifying the coaches. Washington liked to row from behind, but Bobby Mock would sometimes hold the boat as much as four lengths behind, an unreasonable distance from the leaders, and then wear down the other crews by just sitting in place and then turn it on at the end. No. And he kept getting away with it. So Bobby Mock, uh, with his megaphone on his mouth, is 
guiding these eight rowers in front of him, holding them back, and I'm, we're holding our breath. How can they possibly win? For for a time, they can't even hear anything because of the Heil, because right. of the, the the Nazis who yes. are uh, cheering on the Germans. As they come into the last couple hundred meters of the race, the Americans, the way they were positioned, rode right in under the stands where a good part of the 70,000 German fans were, were seated or were actually were on their feet, cheering Deutschland, Deutschland, Deutschland. And so the roar of this chant overwhelmed them and the the other boys in the boat couldn't even hear Bobby Mock at that point. And so they're, they're rowing in this uh, sea of sound and just rowing on sheer guts at that point. Yeah, they right, win. Right under Hitler's nose, they win by six-tenths of a second. Yeah, Quite something. But they kind of went back to, you know, they, they went to the University of Washington, so they became engineers, they right. became part of Boeing, they, yep. they lived the lives that many of their parents couldn't have imagined yes. because of the poverty of the Depression. Yes. But never the accolades. No, there was never... For one thing, they all arrived home in dribs and drabs, so there was never a grand parade or anything like that in Seattle. They, As they got home that summer, they did what they had always done. They immediately began looking for jobs in order to make it through another year of, of university at UW. Yeah. What are they... Even when they were very old men, what did they tell you? about what that was like when they were on the boat and everything was perfect. You know, it was an experience that none of them ever forgot. And the thing that really impressed me was um, it must have been almost like the kind of experience men in combat have because it bonded them together. And for the rest of their lives, until they were very old men, until in fact, until the last two of them died, they were almost inseparable. Every year they rode... Uh, an, every 10 years, rather, they rode an anniversary race on Lake Washington in front of news cameras. Their families became like one family. When there were only two of them left, Joe Rance and Roger Morris, they were both very old men at this point. Joe and Roger would get on the phone and sometimes sit for an hour or two hours and say almost nothing to each other. They just needed to be together, uh, remembering that perfect thing that they had once been. Hmm. What are you hearing from people in Seattle and in Washington State? We had a wonderful uh, evening the other night uh, in a bookstore we had uh, in Seattle to launch the book. Part of what was gratifying for me is that probably a hundred of those people were um, relatives of these nine boys, descendants or whatever of these nine boys. And they are so excited to have this story finally be told because they, all nine of these families, have nurtured this story for 75 years now, um, hoping it would somehow get told. Mm. And so they are very, very excited about the book. Well, they should be. <laughs> the book is The Boys in the Boat, Nine Americans and Their Epic Quest for Gold at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Just a terrific read. Daniel James Brown, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Sun and Ski Sports. They're celebrating National Bike Month in May with a big giveaway. Enter in-store to win a Cannondale Trail mountain bike or online to win a Haro Flightline 1 mountain bike. Cycling isn't just transportation. It's a boost for physical and mental health. Join them for Bike to Work Week from May 13th to 19th. Make every ride count this National Bike Month. Gear up at Sun and Ski Sports, where adventure begins. Visit sunandski.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. 
Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands. But because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. We, as a country, sure do love stories about us beating Germany in World War II. Whether it's beating them at crew, like in Boys in the Boat, or beating them at achieving a weapon of mass destruction. But that isn't the only thing that makes the J. Robert Oppenheimer story so compelling. It's that he was so racked internally about creating a thing that could end the world. Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin published their Oppenheimer biography, American Prometheus, in 2005. It was immediately optioned by director Sam Mendes, but then bounced around Hollywood, finally landing in Christopher Nolan's hands. But NPR's Frank Stacia spoke with Bird and Sherwin when the book came out, and you can hear them talk both tenderly and critically about their subject. It's a testament to how truly deeply they got to know him for all his paradoxes. J. Robert Oppenheimer first fell in love with the New Mexico desert as a teenager. His memories moved him to poetry years later. It included these verses, In the dry hills down by the river, half-withered, we had the hot winds against us. He would return to that desert in the flower of his career to manage the Manhattan Project and design a bomb that would generate the most destructive hot wind human hands could make. Authors Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin have written a new biography of Oppenheimer that takes a comprehensive look at a complex genius, one who one friend described as a maddening bundle of contradictions. Oppenheimer was born into a well-to-do German-Jewish family in New York City. After graduating from Harvard, he quickly distinguished himself as one of the world's leading researchers in the field of quantum physics. At the same time, he became associated with various progressive causes and the Communist Party. That, and complicated love life, would lead to the destruction of his career at the height of the American anti-communist hysteria in the 1950s. American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer, is the book. Its authors are my guests. Kai Bird has written and co-authored many books, including Hiroshima's Shadow, Writings on the Denial of History and the Smithsonian Controversy. And Martin J. Sherwin is the Walter S. Dickinson Professor of English and American History at Tufts University. He's the author of A World Destroyed, Hiroshima and Its Legacies. And they join us now from the studios of member station KQED in California. Thank you both for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. Glad to be here. Well, Martin, let me start with you. You've written about a man, uh, you and Kai have written about a man who managed the project that gave us the bomb and then was chopped to pieces for daring to imagine world peace. A very complex figure. A very complex figure in very complex times, uh, from the Great Depression through World War II through the McCarthy era. There's a speech, and I want to hear a little a little piece of that uh, right now, that, that Oppenheimer gave shortly after the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, talking about the possibilities that this opened, possibilities for world peace. If I return so insistently to the magnitude of the peril, not only to science, but to our civilization, it is because I see in that our one great hope. As a further argument against war, like arguments that have always and increasingly existed, that have grown with the gradual growth of modern technology. It is not unique. As a further matter requiring international consideration, like all other matters that so require it, it is not unique, but as a vast threat and a new one to all the peoples of the earth by its novelty, its terror, its strangely Promethean quality, it has become in the eyes of many of us a unique opportunity. 
an opportunity. Several months after the, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, this is how Oppenheimer sees it. He presents this possibility to Truman, and Truman doesn't see it that way. Uh, I think that uh, the the bomb as peacemaker, which is really what uh, Oppenheimer was talking about there, was a rationalization, but it was really a necessary rationalization since the bomb existed. The question was, how could this possibly uh, be used for good? What positive result could come out of uh, such a devastating weapon? And the scientists, led by Oppenheimer and Niels Bohr, uh, believe that because the bomb was so terrible, uh, perhaps the nations of the world would be willing to sacrifice a certain amount of sovereignty to bring themselves together in a condominium of some sort to uh, protect the world from a nuclear arms race. That was the great dream and the great possibility after the war, and of course that never was realized. Part of this vision, too, included not proceeding with the hydrogen bomb, much more devastating than the atomic bomb that they developed at Los Alamos, and sharing the technology with the world so that we'd be on uh, the world would be on an even footing. And this is what Truman reacted to and called him sort of a hand-wringing it really made it out to, to be a, someone who he had no respect for and said that right. this he is called some him kind a of baby scientist. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there are two very different reactions to, uh, to his response to his, his actions at, at Los Alamos. How did he feel? Was this, was this a man who went into this with a split mind? He was a patriot. He certainly developed the project. He managed. He, he attracted many of the scientists to this thing. He was not opposed to the atomic bomb. No, not at all. I mean, during during the war, uh, Robert Oppenheimer was the engine that uh, drove the atomic bomb to completion by August of 1945. And uh, that ended up being both a sense of pride and a great burden, a great uh, burden on his humanistic spirit, because really there were two atomic bomb projects, so to speak, or two phases for the atomic bomb project. The first one, phase one, was to beat the Germans, who they thought were ra also racing for the bomb. But once the war was over on May 8th, 1945, the second phase was developing the bomb before the war ended and to have it used. And that became a great burden because Robert Oppenheimer learned after the war that the things he had been told about the necessity for the bomb were not necessarily true. For example, he, he learned that the invasion was not scheduled till November 1st. He learned that in June of 1945, the Japanese had begun uh, efforts to try to arrange a conditional surrender. He learned that uh, the emperor's status was the critical issue. He learned that the Soviets had promised to come in before August 15th, and in fact they did. They came in on uh, August 8th. So he was definitely felt uh, used, so to speak, and in that same speech there's a phrase where he says the atomic bomb was used on an essentially defeated nation. Hmm. That philosophy and his prior connections with the Communist Party and other progressive uh, movements uh, led to his uh, losing his security clearance uh, in, in the 1950s. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Yes, well, that's why we call the book American Prometheus, because, of course, Prometheus was the Greek mythical god who stole fire from Zeus and gave it to mankind. And Zeus then punished him for this by chaining him to a cliff and having a giant eagle peck out his liver for 15 generations. And like Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer gave mankind the fire of the atom, 
And then he was punished just nine years later, brought down by the very government that whom he had served and was put on trial in a security hearing that turned into a kangaroo court proceeding. And he was publicly humiliated. His personal life was dragged through the mud. And uh, his security clearance in 1954 was stripped of him. And he became a non-entity for a, a, a while. University communities... Uh, uh, disinvited him from speaking engagements. Uh, he became the chief celebrity victim of the McCarthy era. What did the United States lose by, by essentially exiling Oppenheimer? Uh, had they gotten the best from him, could they afford to throw him away as they did? Uh, or was there some loss to the scientific community as a result? Well, it was a terrible tragedy. They lost his the ability to see the secrets in his mind and the science that he could have developed afterwards. But they also, they did this, the U.S. government did this in 1954 precisely to silence him because he was going public about his attitude towards weapons of mass destruction. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Armiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Taylor Haney, Shannon Rhodes, Ramtin Arablui, Rund Abdel Fattah, Jimmy York, Lawrence Wu, Lane Kaplan-Levinson, Julie Kane, Kia Miyaka Matisse, Natalie Barton, Megan Sullivan, and myself. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, one of the largest recipients of NIH funding. Dana-Farber scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years, data through 2022. They've made one advanced cancer discovery after another for over 75 years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is changing lives everywhere. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With the Spark Cash Plus card, you earn unlimited 2% cash back on every purchase for your business. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash Spark Cash Plus. Terms and conditions apply.